1: Hello and welcome to Off the Beaten Track podcast. I'm your host. I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode. I'm joined by Dave Haslam, writer, broadcaster, DJ, resident of the hacienda, and many, many, many other events and nights and stories, all of which we touch upon uh, on today's episode. Um, you in for a real treat today. Uh, we talk about some great records as well. And uh, and before we get on with the episode, just a few thank yous. Um, a huge thank you to Scroobis Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Uh, I'd also like to thank 76 for producing this podcast, who's uh, who's been up against it in lockdown, because uh, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, you podcast listeners, that uh, most stuff's recorded remotely now. So uh, it's extra pressure on the... Uh, on the producer to get your your podcast sounding as 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 close to two people sitting in the studio together as possible, and, and seventy six has been doing a wonderful job. So thank you. Um, if this is your first time listening to Off the Beaten Track podcast, uh, once you've finished this episode with Dave, then um, why not have a look in the uh, the archives because you'll have access to over one hundred and eighty episodes uh, where I talk to all manner of actors, producers, DJs, musicians, from the likes of, oh, where to start, James Lavelle to Maxine Peake to Amanda Abington to Chuck D to the Deftones to Chic. Um, go and go and have a rummage in the archives and I'm sure you'll find some episodes that will tickle your your fancy. Um, and if that's not enough, I have a Patreon page as well where you can support the podcast and get access to um Oh hundreds of other episodes I put up four radio shows each week over there and uh, video episodes and and unique patreon episodes as well so there's loads of stuff over there and by by signing up there for as little as i think it's about seven quid a month uh you get you know four or five extra shows a week uh, so uh, and and fundamentally you're you know you're helping sustain and and and, and support this podcast so uh, any help over on patreon uh, is really really appreciated um okay you can find out about all of this stuff uh a merch as well uh off the beat and track dot com that's off the beat and not an and track dot com right that's enough waffle from me let's get some uh, some grade a waffle um from the uh from today's wonderful guest please enjoy off the beat and track podcast with the magnificent dave haslam off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network with me stew with him okay we are recording uh joining me today via the means of zoom is dave haslam hello
2: hi Stu, how are you doing
1: uh i'm very well thank you um where are you today
2: uh, i mean i'm in sunny manchester is it uh, sunny it is sunny yeah it's sunny but cold but um I've, yeah i've uh no, well things are good. You know what I mean? Things are good.
1: Has has um, I mean for, for, for listeners that are wondering when we're recording this, we're approaching six months into to, 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 to lockdown in, in whatever stage we're in or wherever it's going. Um how have you found it, uh, Dave, as a as a, a human and as a creative?
2: Well, um as a human and creative. Well as a creative I was um my diary emptied. I mean all my DJ gigs, my book events Um, All the stuff that I do on stage, live, uh, middle of March, it all emptied. Then things got put in the diary for September and then all got taken out again. Um, So it's been quite difficult because I've been able to do a lot of writing, which I like, but that's a solitary job I can do at home. Um, But the DJing is something that I've been doing for 35 years. And and I love getting out the house, playing my favourite music loudly, meeting people, that whole community feeling, so um I guess, as a human, it meant I felt a little bit um isolated, uh, like a lot of people have, a bit claustrophobic, um you know, I had gigs in Germany and paris uh and other places, and um so I'm really disappointed to miss out on the travel um you know, but. I'm, I'm still here and I'm hoping the diary will be filled next year and we can all move on and do what we love to do. Is there anything
1: sort of happening? Sort of, I mean, I did see uh, Luke Unabomber was doing something in Manchester. Is there events starting to sort of open in different, you know, different kind of styles and, uh, you know, what's been happening in the kind of the rethinking. I mean, I I, I run a venue myself uh, and have done for many years, and and we're struggling to think how we can adapt. Just wonder what's happening in Manchester.
2: um, Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, Luke Obama and a bit of a team have have put put together something called Freight Island, um, which is in a big, big space behind Piccadilly Station. Um, It's open air, um, mostly open air. uh, And in fact, I DJed there for him a couple of weeks ago, uh, no dancing allowed, uh, which was okay you know that 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 gave me a chance to play a lot of stuff that i, I probably haven't played out for ever um, and uh, really well run table service uh so it's a different way of it's a different way of having a night out, but at least people get to see each other um and you know uh, I, I get to play some tunes, but I think that um uh, going forward, I think a lot of venues, as, as as you probably, you know, have been thinking of yourself. I mean, a lot of them, in a way, are having to become, in a way, event spaces. You know, more than more than limiting to live venue or club venue. Uh, and a lot of uh, my friends in Manchester who run clubs, you know, we're talking about uh, live streaming from their stage. Um, You know, opening up the venue daytime to maybe other things, you know, everything from kind of, you know, uh, yoga to band rehearsal space. Um, You know, I'm just, uh, uh, the thing is that uh, people are very resourceful and um, people who love nightlife and who work in nightlife, they're used to making something out of nothing. I mean, it's, I mean, we're mostly independents, aren't we? We're mostly undercapitalized. Um, so, you know, we, we, we used to make it going into some dingy basement and turning that into a life changing experience, you know? So if we can do that, then I think we can do anything. And I think the other thing is that human beings are always going to want to go out. So we've, all we've got to do is put our resourcefulness to the forefront. And, um, and when, when it's, when the time is right, people will come back out.
1: hundred percent. Okay. Track one. What's the song with the greatest ever intro, Dave?
2: Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to get my list or you're going to, you're going to have to remind me. I the... haven't got it in front of me. Sorry. Right, I will. I will. <laughs> Cause I did, I, I did make this list and, uh, you know, just for transparency for the listener, you know, uh, I, I did send them over to you and, um, we haven't talked about them, but anyway, uh, magazine, the light like, pulls out of me. Um, is my favorite intro um uh do you play it on your podcast
1: we have a spotify playlist to accompany uh, okay, well, all of the tracks I, on it
2: that's fantastic everyone can dig into that um it was out in 1978 i was 16 i was at that age where i think you're particularly porous in the sense that all experiences and all music make an impact in a way that when you get a bit older, you become a little bit caged, you know, and you kind of, you're, you you know what you like. And like. Um, but when you're 16, you don't know what you like. And, um, and so uh, I think quite a few of the tunes that I've, I've chosen today um, are things that go back to that kind of era. Uh, what I like about this is you, I mean, we'd had punk, I was 14, I was maybe a little bit too young to understand punk. Uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, Paranoid by Black Sabbath was still kind of the great record. And then um, as punk morphed into something a little bit different, you know, with bands like the Pop Group and Joy Division, and in this case Magazine, I began to see a little bit more, I could relate a bit more to the music, seemed a bit more creative to me. And this starts, you know... You just get the drum, draw, draws you in. And then the very rudimentary, in a way, bass sound, Barry Adamson, John McGiock on guitar, the layers start coming in. McGee is a fantastic guitarist, went on to be in Susan the Banshees. Um, and then Howard Devoto, you know, time flies, time crawls like an insect up and down the walls. And by that time, you're totally kind of, you're moved physically and you're, and you're kind of intrigued mentally by the whole experience, uh, you know, and then it kind of hits the first chorus and the keyboards come in. And um, I think it's the intriguingness of it that I like, you know, the way it just draws you in. And um, next thing you know, it's quite a long track, four and a half minutes, I think, uh, or more. And it just, yeah, it just draws you in. And um, so that is that is my favourite intro.
1: How much thought went into that? Was that instant, or was there any other kind of honourable considerations or mentions?
2: Uh, for, for other songs? Mm. Um, uh, let me think. Well, I mean, as a DJ, you know, you you do kind of listen out for, mm. um, you know, song intros that become all important. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's like the memorable ones for me, uh, the kind of call to arms, you know, um, you know, things like Ain't Nobody, for example, you know, uh, and the way that fades in, you know, which is, which yeah. is, um, you know, you're used to something go whoosh, but Ain't yeah. Nobody fades in. And um, so that was another one that I considered, yeah, for sure. What
1: a record that is
2: as well. Yeah, I mean, for, for me as a DJ, I think it's probably my most played uh Tune. I mean, I've yeah. been a DJ thirty-five years, you know. So I, I like to play a lot of new stuff, mm. but um, but then as a DJ, you also you have the records in your box um, that yeah are timeless. There I mean, you get, point,
1: there you get out of jail free cards, yeah, don't they?
2: Kind of, yeah. And and I've, I've said before, I think that with "Ain't Nobody" by Rufus and Chaka Khan, it's like the canary in the mine. You know, back in the old days when the miners went down the coal mine there were quite a lot of, you know, poisonous gases in the environment. And they take a canary, which obviously is a lot more sensitive to poisonous gas, down in a cage, down the mine. And if the canary fell off its perch, they knew, that miners knew, get out quick, you know. And I kind of think that if I ever play Ain't Nobody and No One Dances, I'm basically in a bad environment. (laughs) I should make for the nearest fire exit because it's never going to work. It's never going
1: to work. <laughs> You're in trouble if that's not working. Um, for track two, Dave, I'm going to ask you the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you.
2: Um, the track I've picked is uh, The Four Tops, Reach Out, I'll Be There. Um, I mean, when I was growing up in the, in the 60s, um, Motown was everywhere um you know you'd uh, uh, you'd go to the football you'd hear it before the football you'd go to the fairground and you know the rough where, where was this dave where was home in birmingham in birmingham where i grew up and you know the all, all the rough labs on the fairground you know when you went on the you know on the waltzers and um motel would be you know screeching from the little pa and maybe in town you know you you'd walk past the Greasy Spoon Cafe and if they had a jukebox, it would be Motown. It would be, you know, Tears of a Clown, it would be The Supremes, it would, you know, be... all. all, all. That was the soundtrack, really. And um, so I guess... Uh, uh, it was... I think I probably could have picked one or two other Motown tracks I could have picked, maybe. You know, uh, there's lots of stuff by The Supremes. And... It was music that's so, I think it made an impact on me because it's so simple, I mean, uh, and direct and concise.
1: And the emotion Uh, would
2: have been what? The emotion, well, the emotion of so much Motown, the emotion is mixed, and that is the interesting thing. Reach Out, I'll Be There is an exuberant record full of joy, but actually it's a song about, you know, people feeling lonely and trying to connect with each other so um, I think I knew that there was sadness and then I knew there was happiness but I didn't realize that two and a half minutes of music could somehow mix the two of them up and so that I think is probably why that particular record stood out for me Um, and you know obviously you hear the records again and and in a lot of ways, you know, they still resonate. Um, uh, So, yeah, so, uh, and I remember when I was about uh, eight, seven or eight, my, my little party piece was basically to kind of dress up ridiculously and, and, uh, mime to Motown. I mean, there was no karaoke then. Yeah. But you know, the Jackson Five as well. A little bit later on. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's incredible music. And a, a few years ago, I bought a jukebox, and um, and I just filled it with Motown. Yeah. I thought if I've if if I've got fifty Motown singles, what else do you need? You yeah. know. And they sound great on a jukebox because the other thing about them being So Simply Made is that they're made for jukeboxes and they're made for radio. So, you know, it's clear. Yeah. And the bass is heavy and the melody's strong and the voice cuts right through, you know. So, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's the one that made the impact.
1: And aside from sort of when when you was out and about here in Motown, you know, you mentioned at the fair and things like that, um, growing up at home, what, what sort of music was – what was their music on at home? And, and if so, what was it? What was you exposed to by, like, you know, parents well, and stuff? Well,
2: I, uh, I think it was um, – I mean, my, my parents were into music, but um, I've always thought uh, what's interesting in a way about their generation is that I think my parents were the last generation before rock and roll. They married in 1957. By 1963, as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were breaking through, they had three children under the age of four, you know. So there's no way they were going to tune in and drop out. You know, there was no way they were going to get involved with rock and roll. You know, my dad had to go out to work and my mum had to look after us. And um, so uh, they didn't really get it. And why would they? You know, but they listened to, you know, mostly classical music. Uh, at home Um, but they you know it wasn't a musical environment none of us uh, you know knew how to play an instrument or whatever but I had an older sister who's two and a half years older than me well I still have bless her and um, I think she was probably the biggest influence on my music taste evolving because um, well she was older and so she went to a youth club you know, I was still 10 or 11 and she'd come back and, you know, she'd have uh, Bowie and Mot the Hoopal and Rob Stewart and the Faces. And she was the one who'd make us all sit down and watch Top of the Pops. And, you know, very soon I realised that there were some things on there that made a load of sense to me, you know, like Motown. And then Slade came along, you know, fantastic. Um And then um, and the stylistics, I used to love all the kind of the black American soul groups on top of the pops Uh, had just brilliant kind of day glow suits on and little dance routines. Um, Yeah, so I think, um, and then as my sister got older, um, I, I kind of, or then she started taking me to gigs. But then like you do, I began to then think, well, I want to define my own identity. So she got a bit folky you know fairport convention and, and neil young so i went a bit punky and um, you know the clash and everything else that followed the buzzcocks so i think it was probably um her uh, her taste i remember reading something by um that brian jones of the rolling stones had once said that when the stones started touring the country um they would always love it if there were some cool girls there. Because they just said they just said that they found that in every town the girls were cooler than the boys. The boys would kind of shout about being cool and get down the front and would hassle the band and would wait behind for the band and would start a band. But actually the ones with the best ears were the cool girls. So um you know, I think, I think my, my, my sister and her friends fitted into that category. And I th- still, when I DJ, um, in fact, I started a night in Manchester in 1992 on a Friday night uh, playing disco, funk, rare groove. Everyone else was playing heavy techno. And I thought, well, I need to refresh everyone's ears on a Friday night. And uh, me and Elliot and Jason, who DJed with me, we decided that any record where girls left the dance floor and boys got on the dance floor, we would never play again. And after 12 weeks, we had a killer playlist, and the night went weekly for seven and a half years. What were some of the songs on that? Um, Cheryl Lynn, Got To Be Real, uh, Young Disciples, Apparently Nothing, Candy Statton, You've Got The Love. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, m- m- music music that was a mix of the throwback stuff, Jackson Sisters, I believe, in Miracles, mixed with um, the Mo Wax, Talking Loud, um, and that's kind of more acid jazz, trip-hop type stuff that came through the 90s. And we kind of mashed up the two of them. And the, the idea was that on a Saturday night, yeah, I mean, I was playing a lot of house on a Saturday, so... The idea was that our Friday night was a kind of a warm up, and at that point in Manchester, people were going out, you know, at least twice a week. So they'd come to our our night on a Friday, and then, you know, some, somewhere else on a Saturday, and that was that was you know, the forty eight hour party people.
1: Just g- going back a little bit to uh, to watching Top of the Pops and and and, and you know and getting in, in, into music, like was you any different from your friends in regards to? your passion for music or was you quite obsessive?
2: Well, good question. I mean, I liked, uh, I was drawn to, I think my friendship groups were based around music, really, you know, um, everyone was quite tribal. And, uh, so in that sense, you know, you hung out with other, I hung out with other people who were excited about the new Buzzcocks single. It was kind of what glued us all together. Um, and, you know, then you would go out with that same group. Um, but I think that um, the one thing I think from a, an early age, I think looking back, what was different about what how I was experiencing music was that I was interested in um, in the kind of instant appeal of it, but also the mechanics of it in a way that most people... Weren't you know, most people would go out, say, if you went to a gig, you know, like I, went, I remember going to see uh, Blondie in 1978, I was 16, you know, amazing, a small club. And uh, I know that everyone around me had as you know, deeper passion for Blondie and loved the night as much as me, but in addition to that, I would remember thinking what's going you know what's happening here? what's going on here? Who are the people around me what's what's this tribe? who is this debbie Harry? you know where does she come from? She was like a creature from another planet, you know she was simple. oh uh, my god she was yeah <laughs> and I'm like and and how in everything from like you know the way the guitarist was stood and the lighting and the layout so it's like I, I wanted to see how it was working, so it wasn't just you know watching uh you in 3d i wanted the 4d experience i wanted to know and i think that that's that way that i was intrigued and and, and analyzed it i think that was what made my experience of listening to music different to the people i was hanging out with we were listening to the same music but i was just yeah i wanted to know more you know and through debbie harry i was like okay so it's New York, it's CBGBs, and through that experience, you know, uh, I probably discovered Talking Heads Television, Patti Smith, and back in time, Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol Art, you know, so from from that one night at Barbarella's in Birmingham, I probably ended up, that was my, the door, in a way, opened for me to be interested in all those other bands and and the art scene and the New York scene and you know and that, and um, yeah so that was the extra dimension that I think I was experiencing you know even at that really relatively young age and I'm still like that when I go out you know and you know I became a music reviewer for NME and I had a fanzine and I became a DJ and I think that just the 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 desire uh, and and training yourself up to just think about everything connected with a piece of music. um, I think it's really important as a DJ. You know, when I started DJing, I realised that every piece of music, it wasn't just about the music. It was like, what does it stand for? What sounds like it? Who will like it? Um, Where does it come from? All those questions are important when you're programming music in a club. It's not just, you know, what are the BPMs? That's probably the least important question. Um, and so, yeah, from an early age, my my, my instincts and my brain were, were just going really deep into it all.
1: Well, let's go back to them informative years. And, and, and for track three, uh, the song reminds you of your time at school.
2: Uh, I picked Third World now that we've found love. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not one of those uh, classic records that you hear everywhere now. Although it was big at the time, I think, you know, it was on top of the Pops. Um, But the reason I picked that was because um, uh, I have a very strong memory of uh, the record being played and the girls at school having this fantastic dance routine for it. And... um, Again, it goes back to what I was saying about cool girls, you know. Um, I mean, a lot of the lads at school, you know, they would like their Pink Floyd and their Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, you know, and as, as I did. And for us, I think we thought at this point, I mean, I was whatever it was, 11, 12, maybe, maybe a bit older. Um, I was mostly consuming music. I wasn't going out at that point. I wasn't old enough to go out. And I thought consuming music meant you listen to it in your bedroom or you watched it on top of the pops or you kind of heard it accidentally, you know, at the football or the fairground. But seeing the girls dancing to this song made me realise that there was a way of interacting with music that was much more, uh, yeah, which was about, the about dance and about, uh, that reaction, you know, and it wasn't, um, um, I guess you would call, you know, cerebral. It wasn't about the mind. It was about the body. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, you know, I was just, a, I was just a, you know, a little lad trying to work out what my testosterone was saying to me. And, you know, it also made, it kind of introduced me to the whole, that whole, it just was sexy and it was brilliant. And it was, it was just like the baseline and the, just the, again, the very simple, very positive lyric, it just put me in a really good place you know and um uh and so that's what remind yeah that's that is a very strong strong memory of my school days what did you you want to be when you was at school dave uh i wanted to be a writer i think um especially when i was 14 15 um i read a lot um and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I remember, I, you know, I used to go to secondhand bookshops. I used to go to bookshops and record shops, basically. And I spent all my pocket money on on on, on books and records. Uh, and But once again, with books, I remember in the same way as my interest in records took me to kind of more specialist record shops and, you know, began to listen to John Peel and, you know, hear the more marginal stuff. I get away from Top of the Pops a little bit. I think with my book reading similarly, you know, I I would kind of go down and kind of discover, you know, French novelists in translation and Germans and, you know, weird American stuff. And it it felt like my education was through um, books and, and music and then film, you know, going to watch, you know, early Martin Scorsese films and, Justin Hoffman in The Graduate and, you know, that, that those kind of films. And and um, I kind of felt like that was teaching me about life or 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 at least, you know, making me want to be part of all that, that world, really.
1: You mentioned about uh, records and that. So let's, for track four, let's find out, um, what was the first record you remember buying, Dave? Yeah. Um, T Rex Telegram Sun. Oh, what! That's a great record to start with. (laughs) It is. This is normally the one (laughs) where you have something dreadfully uncool. You pulled a cracker out there.
2: It's a great record. I and um, I I remember there was um, back in the early early mid seventies and afterwards, you could buy records from um, obviously HMV places like that on the high street and then um, and then maybe there'd be other record shops. But also you could buy them from Woolworths, and um, news agents would have them on racks. And they'd often be, I guess they got them from kind of cash and carry or something, and they'd be ex jukebox records. And um, so they'd be slightly cheaper than the ones at Woolworths or HMV, seven-inch only with the hole cut out. And, um, uh, you know, when you when I was 10, maybe I think it was 10 when, when I started buying records from the news agent there, uh, know, it was probably <coughs> half my pocket money, at least uh, my sister had a bit of a collection. So, you know, I just started buying records and, um, and it wasn't the experience that, it, you know, I mean, I think record shops, you know, are, are a fantastic places to sort of, you know, Given, given me so many great records, so many good experiences, and I always say that actually the Manchester record shops of the late eighties into the nineties—Victory um, Records, Eastern Block, Manchester Underground, Spin—in um, all without them, the Manchester scene would never have happened. Um, so, you know, I, I, I soon, ha- I soon had to go beyond the newsagent to find the records I wanted. You know. I moved up to Manchester in 1980, aged 18, to go to uni. So I very soon, you know, arrived in Manchester, having uh, spent my teenage years or my early teenage years in Birmingham. And when I arrived in Manchester, the first thing I I did was to find where are the record shops, where are the alternative bookshops, um, and where are the little venues where, you know, the small bands and the emerging bands play. And, um, you know, and actually what I found was that that the Manchester music scene was in a way very small in 1980. You know, all the stuff that we now think of as kind of iconic, you know, Factory Records and, you know, Joy Division and The Fall and all those groups, you know, they were actually part of a small scene and uh, it was very approachable scene and um yeah so i I, I very soon started yeah i mean record shops at that point were places that you could go to and you know and you'd you'd see the flyers and the posters for gigs coming up and you know know, they were hubs of information Hmm. Um, yeah so uh, uh i was trying to think of the first album that i got but I was very late into albums. It was always, I think, you know, for my first five or six years of buying records, it was singles. And then I think I bought Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. Um, And the first 12-inch record I ever bought was um, Hip Hop Bebop, Don't Stop by Man Parish. What a record that is. (laughs) I think you should put that on the Spotify. Oh, page. it's going on, know,
1: mate. Any excuse to play that again?
2: Um, and I, I walked into HMB and it was playing and I just thought, I have to have this. I just couldn't believe how how different it was and how, yeah, it made a huge impact on me. Very minimalist. Uh, i would not heard anything like that before. And... Um, I mean, that record, you know, I was still probably seven years away from being a DJ when I bought that record. Uh, maybe not quite that, maybe three or four. But, you know, it was all, one of those records that I I knew as soon as I started DJing, this is going to be a record that I play a lot. Yeah. And if you, if you listen to it now, um, you know, it does prefigure a lot of the minimal, uh, you know, early techno house. It's kind of got that. It's a warehouse party record, mm. you know, um, as well as a B-boy spin on your head record. Um, so, uh, and, and actually it was put, uh, I don't know if it would have sounded so good on seven. It needed the space that a 12-inch...
1: 100%.
0: 100%. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping
1: Well, while we're talking about great records to, uh, to hear in clubs, for track five, the song that soundtracked your years in Clubland, you're still well involved in Clubland, so you've got a lot of time to, uh, you know, and a lot of space to choose from.
2: Yeah, I would mean, it's difficult because at the moment, uh, I mean, all you know, my choices are kind of, you know, in a way they're all from yesteryear, uh, you know, and I do have to point out that, if people come and hear me DJ, they do have to understand that, you know, I reckon half the records that I play now um, have been made in the last five years, you know. Um, I don't really like doing retro nights. I get, I don't really like getting involved with the Hacienda reunions. Um, I like the idea... Why is that, Dave? Well, I, I mean... My hacienda years started, my first residency was 1986. That year I started doing every Thursday and every Saturday in the club. And my Thursdays lasted five years. And then I went back again in 96. I did nearly 500 nights at the hacienda. And the last thing that was ever in my mind was to be predictable. The first thing was always, how can I get the dance floor into a place where I can drop this record that they've never heard before and it all change their lives. You know, it was, sounds quite ambitious, but that's what DJing for me was about. And the spirit of the Hacienda was about being different and pioneering and unpredictable and new, new all the time, new stuff. That's why I was at Eastern Bloc Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday with my money saying to Eastern Block, what's come in from... Chicago, Detroit, Italy, Belgium, London. What's coming? What can I play? What can I play at the Hacienda that will blow their minds that they've never heard before? And that's why I love the club, and I think that's why the club was successful. And that's why it should be remembered. So the idea of turning up somewhere and playing a load of records from 30 years ago to an audience who've heard them before and just want to hear them and nothing else to me is almost the direct opposite of the spirit of the Hacienda. Yeah. Um, And occasionally I do nights, Hacienda-themed, but uh, I then throw in extra stuff. In my head I'm thinking, if the Hacienda was open on Saturday and I was still the resident DJ, what would I play? And that's how I approach the Hacienda night. Uh, And so I don't really and I don't really get involved in any of the retro old school nights, you know, so although my choices, you know, uh, for you today, you know, are quite retro. It's because, you know, it's kind of these are the tunes that shaped the rest of my life, but they're not necessarily the records that I would listen to or play now.
1: Just just quickly before we move on to
2: uh track six. I haven't even mentioned what track five is yet. Sorry, it wasn't it
1: was uh, it wasn't Man Parish, sorry.
2: No, it was um Shannon Let the Music oh, Play.
1: What a record.
2: So um that'll light up the Spotify playlist. I mean a fantastic record. I mean um when I uh when I started at the Hacienda um uh, I did quite a few one-offs before I got a residency. Um, and, you know, you. and then when I did the night I was talking to you about before um, at, at, at the boardwalk in the 90s, you know, when I was, you know, trying to do a Friday night that brought in a load of music that wasn't being played by anyone else, I brought this record back um, because it just has, uh, it's just got such a great vibe about it. And it's not overplayed. I mean, as, you know, you know what it's like. I mean, some people want to hear the same records all the time, but for me, some of my favourite records have been kind of ruined by being overplayed. Definitely. Um, So a record like this, still underground, isn't it? It's still an underground record. Um, and, And, you know, it's brilliant production uh you know and you can even hear it it's the kind of tune that influenced you know pet shop boys for example you know um that new york bobby o sound so definitely um, yeah great record just interesting
1: when you talk about that because i know I'm i'm talking to a dj obviously but but generally, people answer that question: "What makes them dance?" And you've you've chose songs that you've enjoyed making other people dance. Playing, what would
2: get you on the dance floor? Uh, oh, lots of different stuff. When when the moment takes me, I do. Um, uh, I mean, I think uh, a couple of years ago, I was playing. I went. 6,000 miles to do a night in, on an island in the Indian Ocean called La Reunion. It's a French island, French colony. So they take euros, which is weird, uh, took me 14 hours or something on a plane to get there. Um, and it was a big electronic dance music festival on this island. And it was great. And there were some brilliant DJs. But as ever, I was I think I was headlining one of the tents on the Friday night And I was playing a lot of, uh, you know, electronic music, going back to Man Parish, but also, you know, Paranoid London, lots of new stuff, Caribou. Um, And and then at one point I was just like, I need to do something that these people are going to really make their, you know, sort the men out from the boys and the, you know, the girls out from the part-timers. And I played um, I Want to Be Your Dog by The Stooges. You know, and I knew I'm the only DJ who's going to come to an electronic dance music festival in the Indian Ocean and play the Stooges, but, you know, I'll be remembered. It might not be the biggest record or, you know, it not, might not fill the floor, but I need to lay my marker down and say, if you're in my team, this is also a great record. And I put it on and about a third of the audience left the tent and the other two thirds just went bananas to the point where I actually felt like I need to jump off stage and get into the mosh pit. And I did. So I, I left the, left the decks. It's not a lot, not a long record. So a, the biggest risk was that I wouldn't be able to get back <laughs> yeah. and play the next record. But I just thought I want to enjoy this moment, you know, and as much as these, these kids are. So, um, yeah, the right moment, I, I, you know, I, there's, my thing is I don't think I've ever played a record that I wouldn't have danced to, you know. I've never played a record I, I don't love. I've never played a record I wouldn't dance to. I've always thought, in terms of programming music, I've always thought, okay, if I was on the dance floor now, where would I want, what do I want to hear next? Where? What should be the next flavour, if you like, you know, what should be the next mood? where should we go from here should we go you know more pumping higher older newer more acid less acid bit of guitars bit quieter something a bit more you know a bit more emotional something or something harder and i'm like that and i'm thinking well where do you need to go to really go on that cliche the journey you know and i and i and i feel like if i if I didn't appreciate the music that I play as much as I did, I wouldn't be able to understand and put myself in that situation.
1: I don't think anyone's ever answered that question any better than that, Dave. Track six, favourite song from an artist from your home County,
2: please. Well, now, now that I've been in um, Manchester for 40 years, I think I'm entitled to uh, choose new order. True um, True faith. I think it's the track that I would play. I mean, New Order absolutely have soundtracked uh, my life. I mean, more than soundtracked. They've, they've kind of driven my life in a lot of ways. I heard, um, I saw Joy Division play three times. Um, you know, they, they were an amazing act, fantastic albums, incredible live. Um, I mean, always on the edge of falling apart, which is Okay. We all are, that's life. Um, and then they came back with new order and um, until and uh, and I I think the first big interview I ever did in the NME was with New order. Um, obviously, I worked at the Hacienda, which was their club. Um, and so um, and then uh, four or five years ago, I did I worked with them on a big project for Manchester International Festival where we reimagined the new order back catalog uh for a synthesizer orchestra and the band and the synthesizer orchestra played together at the old Granada TV studios um so I got to work with the band and you know very intimately and that was a fantastic experience and it was like it, for me it felt like you know, I mentioned earlier about being that lad kind of stood, stood watching a gig thinking what's going on here and, you know, and but really being deeply into it, but being on the outside of, of what was going on yeah. and trying to understand it. And I kind of feel like with the New Order thing that I did, um, it was almost like that was the journey. That was my life. You know, I'd gone from being the pa- passionate, interested, intrigued Young man, kind of looking through the window at this world, absolutely fascinated me. To being in the middle of that world and making stuff happen in that world, um, and, uh, and and a new order really being that, yeah, they've been the vehicle really, and and they've been the soundtrack for for that lifetime's work, I guess. Wonderful.
1: Dave, I'm going to ask you to be DJ now, and uh, and for track seven, it's a song that many may not know that you would like them
2: to hear. Um. Well, I picked a I picked a jazz record from 1957, um, because I've spent most of the summer listening to jazz from 1957, and I'll I'll explain why because it does sound a bit odd. uh, you know, I do a lot of writing. I've written five books, and but my new project is um, small format books. So they're kind of an easy read. They're like a 30-minute read, small format book that you can put into your pocket. And um, I'm just writing about things I feel passionate about. So the first one was about vinyl collecting. The second one was about Keith Haring, the New York artist. The third one was this great stuff that I've discovered about Courtney Love when she lived in Liverpool in 1982. Um, And the book I've been working on all through lockdown is a book about the poet Sylvia Plath. And she, um, uh, I mean, she lived, she visited Paris three times in 1956. And when you have a small format book like that, you can't tell the big story. You can't say everything there is to say about the subject so you pick a kind of episode and you write about that really deeply in a way it's a bit like a single instead of an album you know it's not a big book you can spend five years writing it's something much more concise four months work and and when i write i need to get into the zone i have i have all kinds of little routines i like to you know work at the same time every day. I go to a cafe bar, sit in the same table every day, have the same drink, you know, leave at the same time. It's quite bizarre. But the other thing is I need to have music that gets me to where I need to be. So the book is about Sylvia Plath in Paris in 1956. And that was a great era for jazz, uh, and especially jazz in Paris. Paris is very forward-looking And a lot of black American musicians like Miles Davis loved going and playing in Paris. And obviously, you know, they were getting a warmer welcome there than they were back home, where there was still segregation and racism. Um, And also Miles Davis loved French girls. So uh, it kind of worked for everybody. And although Sylvia Plath was not into jazz, I needed to be in Paris thinking almost in a film way, a film soundtrack. I'm writing about Sylvia Plath walking around Paris, eating in restaurants, having encounters with people. Um, and in my head, I'm thinking this was a film, what would be playing? And I was thinking Miles Davis, Bebop, Dizzy Gillespie. So the, the song that many may not know that I'd like them to hear is uh, The Sunny Side of the Street by Dizzy Gillespie. Um, the Sunny Side of the Street is a jazz standard. I mean, if you go on YouTube or Spotify, there's so many versions. But I love this particular version by Dizzy Gillespie um, for two reasons. One, uh, the music, you know, it sounds, it begins by sounding quite easy listening, um, and but it isn't, you know, there's little discordant elements in it maybe. And then you think, oh, that's decent little instrumental. You know, Dizzy Gillespie, jazz trumpeter, does a great job. And then four minutes in, suddenly Dizzy Gillespie decides, oh, time for a vocal. <laughs> and um, it's literally like the last 45 seconds of the song is him. I mean, he's not a great vocalist, but you can tell it's like, I'm, you can tell he's just like saying to the studio engineer, you know, you can't keep me away from the microphone. I need to sing this song and he sings The Sunny Side of the Street. So I like the fact that the, the song has this kind of very odd um, structure to it, which is like a dance record, you know? Uh, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, verse, chorus, end. And and I love that. And the other thing was that Sylvia Plath is a poet who had a lot of issues in her life, a lot of struggles, You know, listeners may not know her work, but it got very dark. And um, in 1963, she killed herself. But in Paris, she had some incredible moments of happiness. And so the sunny side of the street, the song, and me being able to discover this tragic poet's happy moments put me in a great place at lockdown. So in a way, this is, although Sylvia probably would never have heard this tune, For me, this is like the story of her her Paris trip. So, you know, the song has a lot of... It's this song which will remind me of lockdown in 2020 because I've been able to imagine myself not in lockdown in 2020 but in Paris in 1956.
1: Well, we'll ensure that it goes on the the, uh, Spotify playlist, Dave. Um, As we hopefully see ourselves coming out of of lockdown... um, what are you most looking forward to?
2: Um, travel. I really hope that those DJ gigs in Paris and Germany are still there for me. I mean, I love going away, taking the music, meeting new people, sharing. It's all up for me. The music is for me. It's always about sharing. That's what a DJ does. You know, you you share the stuff that you love, and if you're a good DJ you play it in such a way that the people on the dance floor will love it as much as you. And um, so, but at the same time, I've got I've also got a gig that I need to do in the function room of a pub in Levenshulme, Manchester. And uh, that'll be as much fun as a trip to Paris. So it's, yeah, put me behind the decks as soon as possible and uh, fill the room with people, turn up the bass and I'll be back to doing what I really love.
1: And if people want to find out where these gigs are going to be and everything else that you're up to and the books, where's the best place for them to go?
2: Uh, Probably Twitter, Mr. Underscore Dave Underscore Haslam. And uh, Facebook, social media. Uh, I mean, the website, DaveHaslam.com, has a listing of, you know, uh, gigs, events, book events. Um, So... Uh, there's no excuse, Stu.
1: <laughs> well, um, if you're happy uh, for me to do it, when I put this out, um, I'll tag you on it on, uh, on the social okay. media platforms, and then uh, those that haven't um, followed you yet can then uh, do so. Um, Dave, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you about your records today. Thank you so much.
2: It's been great. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Thank you. There you go. What an absolute gentleman Dave was. And uh, I expected nothing less than fantastic record choices from uh, an absolute uh, connoisseur of the... uh of the DJ world and uh, and yeah absolutely lovely fella so uh, thanks ever so much to Dave and thank you to you lot for listening as mentioned at the beginning if this is your first time listening go and have a rummage in the archives um, because you'll find stacks of episodes you know from, from the likes of blimey uh, the vaccines to the wonder stuff to Jade Adams to James A. Caster oh god I can't think of what else I said at the beginning but there's there's about 180 episodes with all your favourite musicians actors DJs and producers so go and have a look um, and I'll sign off on this bit have a lovely week and uh, and look after each other be nice and uh, www.offthebeatandtrack.com bye bye I've got an announcement Save Our Souls Clothing www.sosclothing.com dot co uk why am i telling you this because they're our official sponsor yeah that's right go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale you're going to love it so they've decided they want to be our sponsor which is amazing and what i have to do is i have to tell you about why they're amazing so here's a little bit of blurb so they've only been going a year and they're based in south on sea just up the road from me they put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music and they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fair Wear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B E A T one five, and that'll save you fifteen percent off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk. Official sponsors of Off the Beaten Track podcast. It's off the Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with it.